0: Hey, next, listeners, I have a special announcement for you. For a limited time, you can now get six months of Slate Plus for just $29. That is 50% off. As a member, you will get no ads on any of our podcasts, including this one. You'll also get unlimited reading on the Slate website and member-exclusive episodes and segments from shows like Slow Burn, Amicus, Political Gab Fest, Slate's podcasts, like this one, cover major news events, from elections to social issues to historic court decisions. Our shows also discuss what makes a song a smash, analyze what's going viral, decode cultural mysteries. If we have become part of your listening routine, we ask that you support our work by joining Slate Plus. Sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com slash whatnextplus, and you can access all of Slate's content and support our work. Again, it's just 29 bucks for 6 months through October 28th. So, sign up now at slatecom plus.
1: The war in Ukraine is dragging on, and I've been wanting to understand the toll of Russia's bombardment from someone who's witnessed the brutality up close. So, late last week, hey, good evening. I called up Dr. Samer Attar.
2: Uh, yeah, or, or Sam or Sam. It doesn't
1: matter. Dr. Attar is an orthopedic surgeon. Most of the time, he practices in Chicago. But earlier this year, he traveled to Ukraine as the Russian invasion began.
2: I was in Kiev right at the start, around March. And uh, I was working in an orthopedic hospital, and we were probably doing around 10 operations a day on war wounded.
1: Some of Dr. Attar's descriptions are going to be a bit graphic from here
2: on out. A lot of fractured bones, mangled limbs, blast wounds. A lot of what you do as a war surgeon is just cleaning up wounds and trying to get broken bones to heal and trying to get areas of muscle that are exposed covered.
1: These wounds were very familiar to Dr. Attar. That's because in 2013, he began traveling to Syria. To treat people injured in that country's civil war.
2: Now, the UN Human Rights Chief says the death toll in Syria now tops 60,000. Navi Pillay saying the number of casualties is much higher than expected and truly shocking.
0: In the outskirts of the Syrian capital, the devastation of the war is clearly visible.
1: It's worth remembering, Russia has been deeply involved in the Syrian civil war. Since the beginning of the conflict, Vladimir Putin has backed Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. In 2015, Putin's support turned into military intervention, with Russian forces dropping bombs on hospitals, schools, and residential neighborhoods.
0: Anti-regime forces and civilians targeted with more than 500 missiles and hundreds of shells, according to an observer group.
1: Now, Dr. Attar is seeing some of the same tactics he witnessed in Syria play out in Ukraine, where just a few months ago, he saw the human cost.
2: There was one little girl, I think she was about 14 or 15, but she lost her right leg and had a fracture in her left leg, and she just spent the day watching episodes of Bridgerton, because her right leg was amputated and it was infected and she was requiring multiple trips to the operating room to get cleaned up and washed out.
1: There's something very surprising and even sweet about that particular image.
2: Yeah, there was just something sweet about her. She was stuck in the hospital and uh, just was sitting calmly, understanding that she was probably gonna be there for another month, getting her legs cleaned out until her wounds could get healed and closed.
1: Today on the show, one doctor's efforts to repair the wounds inflicted by war, and what he's noticed in two different countries scarred by Russian bombs. I'm Mary C. Curtis, filling in for Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us.
0: This episode is brought to you by Discover.
1: Dr. Samar Attar has gotten used to traveling into a war zone. He started these kinds of trips in 2013, after the civil war began in Syria. He's a member of the Syrian American Medical Society, and the group was arranging for its doctors to go over and
2: help. For me, for Syria, that's, that was my heritage. So I grew up going to Syria. My parents are from Syria, and when I learned that doctors were being targeted and assassinated and hospitals and ambulances were being targeted and destroyed— and that they were running out of, of medical staff. Uh, being an American, being born and raised with the luxuries, of being a United States citizen, I just felt obligated to give back. So it was my way of giving back to a culture and a heritage that has made me special, made my upbringing special. Uh, they said they needed a surgeon and a lipo, and if, uh, if I wanted to go all the way in, they could get me in, just as long as I understood the risks. I found myself being smuggled across the border uh, uh, into Syria. The war had been ongoing for about two years at that point. And yeah, I mean, the first time I went in, I wondered what I was doing and why I was there. And um, I was scared to death. Um, But once I got to the hospital, I met the chief surgeon. The first thing he did was give me a big hug. And he said, thank you for coming to Syria to help. Mm. Um, And uh, I just changed into scrubs and immediately got to work.
1: Well, I know you were only supposed to stay for a couple of weeks. Was there a particular moment that made you decide to stay longer?
2: I was there my third day, and um, three days in, there were, there were a lot of attacks, and were there were a lot of patients coming through the doors, and we were, we were operating a lot, and uh, a school was bombed. It was Ramadan at the time. At one point, the emergency room was overrun there were so many people trying to get through the front door. There was no place to step. We, we were placing patients on the floor because we just, we didn't have enough beds. And uh, there was a kid who had the bone fragments of other people that had embedded into him, which was not uncommon to see. And in these, in these explosions, um, other people would blow up into each other. And that was, uh, that was horrifying to see. And one of the nurses was trying to help dislodge some of these fragments. And I remember the the boy's father asked the nurse who I was, like, who, who is this person? Why does he not speak Arabic very well? And where is he from? And uh, he said, yeah, this is Dr. Sam. He's, um, he's an American. And the dad said uh, he'd never met an American and he never thought he would. He never thought it would be when people were leaving Syria and an American doctor came to help. That for me was very meaningful. I stayed for two weeks and I tried to make it a habit to go uh, for a week to two a year after that. And I, I also volunteered to sign up for Doctors Without Borders for more extended missions at the border. The longest I took off was six weeks. And that's hard to balance, too, because you're balancing your practice here in Chicago, my practice here in Chicago, and my patients, but also the needs and the connection I felt uh, working there.
1: Did the child with the bone fragments from the blast from other people, did he make it? He made it. How'd you feel?
2: I mean, that... That feels good you see um, you see a lot of people die. you bear witness to the worst of humanity and then uh, one night, I do remember uh, strangers brought in a kid who was found after an airstrike. Uh, he was found alive, uh, but unconscious in the rubble and they, and they just they brought him to our hospital because it just happened to be the nearest one and everyone was everyone was working together uh, they were doing CPR on him, and one surgeon was holding this boy's Femoral artery with his fingers because the the child had a huge wound um, with a broken femur and uh, an obliterated artery, and uh, they actually um, revived him and we fixed his fracture and he woke up and told us who what his name was. He told us who his dad was and his dad came to the hospital and found his son and uh, and that was a win because a lot of times a lot of times children are. Just people, civilians, would be caught in these attacks and would be dismembered or disfigured or burned beyond recognition and never identified, taken to be buried, and and family members would never know what happened. So this dad got to come to a hospital and find his son, and uh, never left his side. And it's those it's those memories that I try to keep with me to balance out all the other horrors that you witness.
1: You've got to take those wins when you can.
2: Yeah. A lot of what I did as an orthopedic surgeon were were just taking care of leg and arm wounds so people would come up with skin and muscle missing, with exposed bone, oftentimes associated with fractures, and uh, a lot of amputations. I've done uh, uh, more amputations than I ever cared to do, uh, but that's a lot of what we did. We were either cleaning out wounds, cleaning out amputations, redoing an amputation, or dealing with freshly wounded.
1: After the break... Why Dr. Samra Atara began taking his wartime operating experience to Ukraine. This past February, as the Biden administration began warning that Russia was getting ready to invade Ukraine, Dr. Samar Attar began preparing for a possible trip there.
2: I had a feeling I'd be volunteering even before the war started. We all heard about the Russians mobilizing, and we all had a sense that Ukraine was going to be at war at some point, at least reading the news. And I, I just had a sense that I'd be involved. I just felt obligated after what I had seen and done in in Syria and having been under Russian bombs before and having having dealt with those war injuries and those war wounds for years, um, I just felt obligated to go help out.
1: Tell me more about what it was like when you first arrived in Ukraine, what you saw, how it was.
2: I remember being very quiet. Uh, I first went to Lviv and then I took a a train uh, into Kiev and I just remember, I remember the curfews and uh, I remember the streets being empty and then the environment would be punctuated by air raid sirens.
1: Russia, of course, is a common denominator in both of these conflicts, and they've been criticized for intentionally targeting civilians. How have the injuries you've seen in Ukraine compared to what you saw in Syria?
2: Yeah, so they're they're high-energy blast injuries. They're the same. I mean, the injuries I saw in Syria are exactly like the injuries I saw in Ukraine.
1: A lot of those injuries come from what are called cluster bombs, munitions that get dropped from the air and break into pieces, hitting multiple targets in one shot. Cluster bombs are technically banned from being used on civilians, but Russia has used the weapons in both Syria and Ukraine, and the damage they leave behind can take a long time to diagnose.
2: It's a a lot of little bits and pieces of of metal and shrapnel that sort of shotgun blast into the human body. The other thing to keep in mind is that uh, the wounds are constantly evolving so that a lot of time, most of the time you have to leave the wounds open because muscle that looks alive on day one might not make it and might die on day five. So uh, the zone of injury is never really never really present upon immediate presentation, which is why one of the principles of war surgery, for example, if somebody came in with an amputated leg, you you don't you don't close the wound, you leave it open and let the muscles declare itself because over time, due to the high energy, blast of the injury, the muscle can necrose. It can take up to five days for it to declare itself. And so that's why you're oftentimes going back to the operating room to cut more tissue, debris, dead tissue before you can make the decision to close a wound.
1: But despite these similar injuries, you've also noted there was some big differences between the two conflicts, particularly the status of the healthcare infrastructure in Syria compared to Ukraine. You said that even though Russia has targeted hospitals, Ukraine's healthcare system is still largely intact while Syria's was completely decimated and you were doing surgeries all over in basements, underground. Can you describe that difference?
2: Yeah, so in in Syria, wearing a red cross or a red crescent or wearing scrubs made you a target. So symbols of medical neutrality became targets and that's why healthcare was driven underground. That's why you'd find hospitals Made out of caves and and farms and and apartment buildings the hospital I worked out of in Syria was was out of a basement and uh, sterility you know wasn't great and you didn't have access to a lot of equipment and you were just kind of doing the best you you could and I learned a lot from Syrian surgeons because they taught me how to do so much more when they're when you're given very little the good thing about Ukraine is that at least the hospitals are still functioning. The hospitals aren't being built out of caves. But I, I in Ukraine, we all slept in the hospitals. Everyone lived... The doctors, the nurses, most people lived within the hospitals because it was too dangerous to go home, or or if there was a mass casualty event or a nearby bomb, everyone wanted to be ready. They wanted to have everybody in the hospital that could mobilize instantaneously to take care of people if they if they got flooded with patients. But at nighttime, we we couldn't leave the lights on because they were worried we might get targeted. In Kiev, one hospital I worked at, um, they said some when the Russians were close, they were shooting into the hospital, so they had to cover all the windows. Uh, with blankets. And then the major issue was if there was, like right now, there's been an onslaught of recent attacks in Ukraine. And the big issue is um, if the hospital has been hit or if the water supply has been hit, they worry about whether the electricity is going to work, whether the water is going to work, because you need water to scrub into surgery, you need electricity to run anesthesia machines. That was the bigger threat.
1: You've mentioned that when you left Ukraine in the spring, people were hoping that the war would be over by the summer. Well, months have passed and there are no signs of the war coming to an end. There's escalation. Do you feel a sense of deja vu with what happened in Syria where people kept assuming that the civil war would come to an end and yet it's still going on?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I talked to my friends that are there and they're, you know, many of them haven't seen their wives or their families in several months. And one of the surgeons I worked with working in Zaporizhia, hasn't seen his family since February. Oh. He's just moved, been moving from hospital to hospital. But uh, I, did, I, know I told him, I said, I'd like to maybe come back in the winter and help you out. And he said, well, well we're hoping that the war will be over by then. And, and I hope so too. I, I hope that if I, if I do get to go back, uh, it'll be because I'm visiting friends, not because it's the war is so ongoing.
1: You've talked I know about the romanticized image probably from culture and media that many have of the wartime surgeon saving lives in dangerous times and dangerous places. what would you tell our listeners is the reality?
2: I would say that over time um, if it's work that you want to do you have to be careful because it can it can take a physical um, psychic toll bearing witness to all that suffering. And, you know, I, I know one surgeon who lost, in Syria that lost, um, he, he lost count of all the amputations he was doing, and it can really burn you out. And it's very easy to get overwhelmed with feelings of of helplessness and powerlessness and meaninglessness. But you have to find ways also to balance that with the courage and compassion and resilience from the people around you. So I, that's where I tried to get strength from when I was there. Um, when I was in Ukraine. You know, I saw in spite of all the bombs, you'd see people in the streets that civil servants that were still cleaning the streets and running public transport, even the railway workers and people working on the trains and in Ukraine to get from one place to the other. You'd have to take trains and people that worked on the trains just saw it as their duty. And I think I think it means a lot. Just just being there and looking them in the eye and shaking their hand. It's um it's a form of solidarity and then the last thing is you, you get to be an advocate, you get to be a voice for them. You get to bear witness and come back and let people know what you saw because there are a lot of narratives in war and um, you get to speak on, on, on their behalf and amplify their voices in areas that otherwise wouldn't be heard.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Samer Attar, and thank you for your work.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Dr. Samar Attar is an associate professor of surgery at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine and a volunteer with the Syrian American Medical Society. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Madeline Ducharme, Carmel Del Shad, Elena Schwartz, and Mary Wilson. We're getting some help from Jarrett Downing and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And filling in today from Mary Harris, I'm Mary C. Curtis, columnist for Roll Call and host of the Equal Time podcast. We'll catch you back in this feed tomorrow. Thanks for listening.